Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in South Asia Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Lakshata Malik, and I'm co-hosting this interview with Niharika Yadav. We are joined by Professor Shailaja Payak, Taft Distinguished Professor of History, Faculty Affiliate, Women's and Gender and Sexuality Studies, and Asian Studies at the University of Cincinnati. We are in conversation about her book, The Vulgarity of Caste, Dalits, Sexuality, and Humanity in Modern India, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Welcome, Professor Payak. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, Niharika, you do want to open and start with the first question? Absolutely. Uh, thank you both. Uh, I want to start, Professor Payak, by asking you about broadly about the idea for the book, Uh, So my question is about the journey from your first book, Dalit Women's Education in Modern India, Double Discrimination, which came out in 2014, to this one. Uh, In Dalit Women's Education, you chart a first-of-its-kind social and cultural history of education in modern Maharashtra that centers Dalit women's experiences. And one can see the seeds of your current project in the story you track in your first book, both in terms of studying uh, what you call the contingent and circumscribed agencies through which Dalit women imagine new futures for self and community, but also methodologically in terms of the ethnographic mode of history that you adopt for analyzing some of the archival and political silences, structuring experiences of Dalit women. So can you tell our listeners how the plan for this book emerged uh, out of the first one and how you got interested in writing a history of Tamasha and of women performers in particular? Certainly. Before I delve into that, I want to thank Lakshita and Niharika for doing the podcast. And I am very thrilled to talk about uh, the book on this podcast. I think you're doing an amazing work. So I I watched uh, Tamasha and other popular um, forms of theater along with films. And as a child, I was very excited about these arts and also enacted uh, the song and the dance performed uh, by women. It was mainly during my field research, you know, from 2000 to 2004 for my first book, uh, as Niharika mentioned, the, the, it was the Dalit Women's Education in Modern India, Double Discrimination. It was published in 2014 by Rutledge when I interacted with uh, Tamasha women. Of course, for this book, I interviewed Dalit women from a range of backgrounds, rural, urban slums, uh, from middle class uh, households, lit, you know, those who are literate and even the non-literate. And I came across Tamasha dancers uh, who mentioned that they could not attend school, mostly because they were constantly on the move. And so, you know, uh, this is all, I mean, as I said, you know, as a child, I've always uh, participated in these performances, but as a researcher, I wanted to understand, you know, the social uh, and and the, the political and the ideological constraints and forces that actually rooted uh, Tamasha in a caste in in caste patriarchal violence. And mainstream scholars scholars have you know neglected Tamasha, and except for one article by an eminent sociologist, Sharmila Rege, there is no systematic analysis of the social life of Tamasha. And that is what you know I wanted to analyze. So Tamasha, which is you know, a popular form of public theater, uh, practiced predominantly by Dalits and is considered a Dalit traditional art. I, I wanted to understand as to you know why the theater and you know this uh, this kind of performance and especially women in there were often branded ashleel that is vulgar and bibhatsa that is disgusting by the larger society. 
And so, of course, this is, you know, per the morally driven modern ethic of the pre-colonial, colonial and the post-colonial state, the elites, as well as, you know, uh, some ordinary people participating in this. And so, you know, bringing my work, you know, on Dalit women and, you know, now taking it to... Uh, so those were respectable Dalit women that were needed for the uh, Dalit movement and the liberation of Dalits. I moved to the so-called non-respectable or dishonorable uh, Dalit women. And of course, I repeat the so-called. So so these uh, dishonor and disrespect in quotes. So I'm questioning these categories. So to, in, to understand them, um, I... I constructed and, you know, conceptualized this concept of the sex gender, of sex gender caste, which is, you know, and to understand the structural complexities of sexual and gendered arrangements of the caste system as they have operated to oppress Dalit Tamasha women. And to investigate these entangled histories, I developed the sex gender caste complex and also the Ashleel Manuski Asli complex as they were embodied by these women who the larger society thinks you know uh, are uh, are are embodying some kind of sexual excess so i analyzed the conjugated oppression of vulgarity sex sexual uh, uh, sexuality caste class gender and popular culture and illuminate how this came about in the 20th century and how different actors you know such as the british high caste elites maharashtra state and Dalits engage with rowdy and this carnivalesque tamasha for their own purposes. Yeah, thank you so much for for that uh, answer, Professor Payak. And, and and we'll be getting into a lot of the things that you mentioned uh, a little bit later in the interview. For now, I wanted to ask you um, a question around uh, the region. Right. So a key side through which you engage with the questions of caste, identity and culture is not the nation, which a lot of researchers and and theorists default to, but the region. Um, In this case, it's Maharashtra. In your book, you trace the history of the region by centering uh, performing arts like Tamasha and Lavani. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how the region became so important in in your work and and especially in the histories of complex caste violence? And I'm thinking here uh, of the projects of like Marathi Karan and and that that carry the Brahminical and colonial legacies of of caste exploitation. Yeah, definitely. So in my work, I mean, both, you know, uh, my first book and my second book, the region actually provides an in-depth analysis of the conjugated oppressions of caste, gender, and sexuality at the local level. So the region in this case, Maharashtra, is an important site for the study of the functioning of the feudal caste patriarchal system. Both, you know, it uh, shows us the fluidity as well as the tightening during certain historical periods. So Brahmanism was a powerful ideology, although it was simultaneously accompanied by a critique and anti-caste thought. In the 18th century, the Brahman Peshwa and and the Brahman state bureaucracy preserved and tightened the caste system. They strictly upheld uh, the Brahman state order and created, at least ideologically, uh, a Brahmanical Hindu kingdom. The ethic of the, the, ethic of the elites, it, it, it sharpened you know, a similar Brahmanism during colonial times. And especially since the end of the 19th century, it, in order to preserve the spiritual core of modern Maharashtra. After independence, this process of legitimization sharpened even further. And so this is the story I track uh, in the book. I, you know, show as to how this, the region, it actually provides a microcosm of the casted, gendered, sexual practices and a deeper access to social life, which is spread in the, in, in the bylines and the local libraries and it can be extended uh, to the national level. Uh, 
So as such, you know, we see that the post-independence project of Marathikaran was a dialogue. It was in a dialogical relationship with pan-Indian politics. It was tied uh, to the making of the modern Indian nation, you know, on common grounds of, for example, script or linguistic heritage, artistry, as regional imagination emerged alongside the national. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I, that that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for, for answering that question, Professor Payak. And this immediately leads me into, obviously, the biggest sort of uh, uh, concept in this book, one of the key concepts in this book, which is the sex-gender caste complex. And I'm particularly interested... Um, in the methodological practices of your book, you draw on a wide range of uh, regional and archival records, um, Peshwa patronage records, various colonial records, as well as ethnographic uh, modes of inquiry, analysis of visual performing cultures. There's a lot that that went into uh, this book as far as methodology is concerned, a wide array of methodological um, uh, uh, sites that you draw from. Could you talk to us about the patchy Tamasha archive uh, through which you flesh out the contours of this sex gender caste complex. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, when I started on this project, even I was quite uh, nervous about, you know, uh, the archives. I mean, I certainly know there's a lot of secondary literature uh, on Tamasha. But at the same time, you know, there are, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I also grew up watching uh, these Marathi films, especially, you know, Tamasha-based uh, films. So certainly, you know, uh, there is uh, there are there are a lot of different kinds of archives, right? And so this is where, you know, I wanted to, and this is, you know, again, going back to my first book, how I have weaved together these different sites of knowledge. So uh, in, this, in this book also, I combine ethnographic fieldwork with, a, you know, oral histories and with a close reading of a variety of Marathi archival materials, like, you know, memoirs, biographies, autobiographies, poems, proverbs, films, documentaries, newspapers, magazines, and books. And this is, uh, you know, the patchy archive, which is very multi-layered, which is also very fragmented. And there are contested narratives uh, that emerge about Tamasha and Tamasha women. The uh, This patchy archive also illuminated uh, the differences in, you know, touchables and untouchables readings of Tamasha. So, for example, you know, as the first chapter shows, touchables and untouchables had contrasting views of Paulabai, the modern, the first modern Dalit woman um, performer, you know, dancer and singer. So, you know, I point out to these problems uh, of, you know, lack of documentation, especially uh, because of the stickiness of Ashlil or the vulgar. Two figures like Paula Bai, despite of her being an absolutely, you know, famous star. So we, uh, we clearly see that, you know, like in other communities, uh, inside and outside of Maharashtra, the Dalit community also engaged, you know, um, in a vibrant print and public culture. And they con- contested the existing idioms, codes and practices of caste, gender, religion and sexuality. And they created their own new versions to su- to supplant them. And Marathi newspapers published by dominant caste also you know, do not have even fragments of the news I refer to in my book. And of course, you know the English newspapers and literature also produced by dominant castes and mostly southerners were rarely interested in Dalits, uh, you know, ideas and what other Dalits thought about caste, untouchability, identity, gender, or sexuality. So they, they all neglected uh, the Dalit surplus woman. And, you know, socially mobile, anxious Dalits also did not want to mention uh, these women in their newspapers or associate themselves with any sort of ashlil or women of ill repute, as they would say. So that is why the Tamasha archive is very patchy and inconsistent. And I had had to recreate the muted voices and the suppressed subjectivities of Tamasha women 
through writings of men and you know more, and of course most significantly through oral histories so, so for example to give you you know an example chapter 1 which you know where i have recreated the history of and that would this is the first history of paulabai and you know we we come across merely sentences you know in 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 Mar- in the bi- biography of bapu rao so you know and mo- and these sentences also you know create a lot cause a lot of violence uh, to the entity of paulabai and that is that is the kind of woman that emerges but at the same time you know juxtaposing the memoir and the biography and some secondary sources you know i have tried to weave together um uh, paulabai's life story so um i'm uh, i'm very happy that i was able to do so by putting these pieces together you know in working with this patchy uh, archive yeah so it was challenging and at the same time very exciting yeah my uh, my next question actually follows on that so this is a, a great segue because you come up with uh two ways to describe the methodology that you adopt to negotiate this patchy archive one is of course the vernacular as method which you talk about uh which is you know both reading these unexplored archives in marathi but also using vernacular concepts and political languages and particularly particularly the concepts of um ashleel asli maruski uh as and and then you also say uh in one place uh can you also use the other kind of reading on this patchy archive you say connected histories so here i was really 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 taken in by your suggestion about the need to write connected histories of dalits and dominant castes to study what you call the interlocking technologies through which the sex gender caste complex works to structure all kinds of hierarchies um and that shape our experiences uh, not just of caste but of class and gender so in this regard um as you mentioned the second chapter presents a kind of exemplary connected history in which you show how very different resources are available to two tamasha performers you know bapura who's brahmin male and paula bai who's a female dalit and you uh the connected history that you show is uh, is is absolutely stunning in how you are able to then show that the very resources that pavla bai uses to transform her performance into what you call quote her dalitness and artistry artistry into possibility uh was constrained by the same social power and capital that bapura was able to use to kind of boldly denounce his caste and caste privilege so you show how the stickiness Uh, and and this is also a concept i'd love for you to elaborate on of the charge of ashleel or vulgar uh, is made to kind of stick to pavla bai's uh, performance and this is very directly linked to the resources that bapurao can use to claim authentic marathi cultural identity so can you share some more reflections on this idea of connected histories because i see many possibilities uh of of this uh concept for writing kind of anti caste histories of south asia yes certainly yeah so see, this is uh, one of my most important uh, contributions so we have works uh, you know by scholars who have either focused on you know just like for example they focus only on the brahmins or they focused on dalits or you know they focused on you know rajputs or so on but we haven't really talked about the connections between these different communities so that is what i have you know tried to show that we need to look at you know people who are located in these different social locations and how they are actually interacting with each other and you know drawing upon each other's expertise for example here we see bapura doing that with you know paulabai and mahars and mangs he comes across and how he is able to really you know he is able to appropriate uh, their arts and their cultures and at the same time you know sh- there are so- 
it does you know reveal some possibilities of an anti-caste critique but at the same time there are limitations right so there are all these different um, lines that uh, we come across and at the same time you know connections uh, between people and how they came together uh, in certain historical conjunctures to shape uh, certain politics right here you know yes an um, uh, anti caste critique to an extent but at the same time it also shows uh, the fissures and the predicaments and you know the problems uh, that erupted because of the uh, the lack or the limitations to their thinking as well as practice so that was one you know important line of thought uh, that i have pursued and the second one is you know showing how the stickiness of caste and the ashlil the way it attaches not to a task or even the art primarily but to the body of the person that performs it and thus you know forecloses economic opportunities for some people beyond uh, tamasha so here uh stickiness you know um i draw upon ambedkar who of course himself did not use the word ashlil but he did capture the essence of the ashlil sticking to the untouchable when he referred to what he called protective discoloration that cannot be peeled off and that prevents the realization of an authentic selfhood so stickiness here is the outcome of repeated impressions it is an effect that emerges from these histories of contact so as we say for example you know between paula bai and bapura in the first chapter or for example um you know in the film chapter so we we see as to how it emerges in this contact uh, contact between the elites and tamasha uh, actors so we see that you know in this uh, stickiness actually emerges from these cultural and personal exchanges and also those exchanges repeat meaning and resonance and you know it results in what uh, what the anthropologist sarah amath has called an accumulation of affective value and that is stickiness so i show that the stickiness attached to dalit tamasha i mean the performance as a whole as well as you know moments to uh, and the performers as well as uh, at moments to the dalit community as a whole so for example when all dalits are while all dalits are considered polluted some uh, like tamasha women they were considered more polluting uh, more ashlil than others so even inside the dalit community we come across you know these these uh, different layers and as a result uh, we see that to radical dalits this ashlil actually disrupted their march to modernity and manuski because the ashlil in every minute form it prevented dalits from becoming fully human and so this is the stickiness of vulgarity and caste pollution and so i show how uh, vulgarity and caste pollution colluded so this stickiness of caste for brahmins would be you know accumulation of their privilege and power and that would make an even stronger brahman personhood but the same stickiness of caste you know sticking accumulating over time it cannot be easily altered when it stuck to dalits it compounded dalit subalternity stigmatizing and subjecting them even further so we see that you know for example in the case of bapurao he muffled untouchable voices and silenced them as soon as they produced lavanya he appropriated appropriated their lavanya and he even imprinted his signature you know on his lavanya so even though he sang a lavanya which was supposed to be you know ashlil vulgar bapurao this brahman man does not become vulgar right and like the untouchables so this is the stickiness of vulgarity it stuck to the untouchables and left touchables like bapurao free right thank you so much for that and 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 stickiness as we learn throughout your book is such an important concept which allows me to then segue into uh this concept of manuski um 
So and you provide such a nuanced critique of of and this is again related to questions of Dalit masculinity, which uh, simply are understood in the literature as replicating problems of Brahminical heteropatriarchy. And you very much contend that and, and you very much critique that. In fact, you engage with Ambedkar's complex understanding of Manuski denied to Dalits under Brahminical power regimes and how it was meant to be extended to Dalit men and women equally, not just men, right? So not only does Manuski then differ from liberal human rights discourses, but is also not the same as dominant caste, uh, middle-class respectability politics. Um, so Manuski, which is humanity, right? That's not the same as either of these things. This is particularly evident in how you understand Jalsa and its relationship to uh, Tamasha and Lavanya, What again? Uh, which again also brings together this question of stickiness, vulgarity, and what one must do to, quote-unquote, escape it. And could you please get into some of these uh, complicated understandings of Manuski and Dalit masculinity? Yeah, certainly. I mean, and so I've been, you know, as I said, uh, this is uh, the first work that has uh, really unearthed these concepts in the vernacular Marathi for us. And... It has been, you know, an absolutely fantastic um, experience, you know, working with these uh, with these hitherto neglected uh, concepts and, you know, ideologies and intellectual contributions of Dalits. So here, you know, uh, we see that, of course, you know, as we know through different histories. Uh, of different regions in India, Dalits struggle to recuperate, uh, recuperate their humanity and dignity, which is that is Manuski in Marathi, as and this is the word that is used that is used by Ambedkar. So uh, they they wanted to recuperate their Manuski and lift themselves up, raising their moral status in the eyes of the dominant castes and the colonial government to assert their asli status. So although on the exterior, uh, some passed as touchables, Dalits could not easily escape the stickiness of caste or separate it from their lower status to become casteless. And so therefore, they were always already, you know, ashlil, uh, unlike the modern touchables. Although Savarna women were performing in Tamasha and Lavani programs or Tamashe in, in films, this it was very a, temp, a tentative monetary arrangement for them. They were not stigmatized like hereditary Dalit Tamasha women. So, you know, um, Savarna women could ride their scooters to the theater, dance and sing. And, you know, after the show, they could very uh, easily return to their respectable homes as normal, modest and models, uh, modern women. However, you know, the abject Dalit Tamasha woman was excluded from such fame, and they did not enjoy this privilege and luxury. They were afflicted by poverty and the stickiness of vulgarity and stigma of caste. So that is, you know, uh, how I see how Manuski, you know, actually was a, a concept that Ambedkar, you know, um, worked through and how it eluded, uh, it excluded uh, Dalits, and especially the Dalit uh, Tamasha woman. Uh, however, when we look at mm, when you know when we think about the intersections of popular practices, which are you know there's certainly caste patriarchal based cultural forms such as Tamasha, and sexual labor, gender, human, and Dalitness. Again, there is you know scholars have you know paid little attention, and when when they have brought when they have thought about gender and Dalitness in the same analytical framework, their analysis also tends to flatten or misinterpret certain gendered processes vis-a-vis Dalitness and humanity. So they also do not, these scholars also do not provide any specific contents and contours of what it actually means, uh, what, like what, what is meant by Dalit masculinity as such and its historical transitions in the early 20th century. So this is where, you know, yes, on the first glance, it may seem that Ambedkar is also trying, you know, using his patriarchal power to uh, domesticate uh, 
the surplus tamasha woman however i think you know this requires a deeper thought and a deeper analysis as to what it actually meant so for example you know like for example some scholars have have uh, they, they tend to think that dalit masculinity is a merely mimicry of dominant norms of manhood and on the other it uh, it like produces uh, this re- actually reproduces a one dimensional view of you know quote unquote suffering battered and thrashed dalit women at the hands of dalit men so this is where i think you know this is a very simplistic uh, reading and so i show that my book shows that patriarchy is first first of all a hierarchical relationship among men and in this case especially the british and touchable men so we know we know as to how the british characterize colonize indian men as inherently inferior but also differentiated among them through a hierarchy of manliness and masculinity so patriarchy is always operate in a relational manner and they are subjected to a wider political economy so elite feminists have easily they easily elide how masculinities are produced differently at different complex intersections of class family gender community and nation and in fact it is dalit's subordinate and you know so called uncivilized masculinity that rendered them not male that rendered them irrelevant threatening and dangerous to touchables so it is these tenuous processes that make dalit men more vulnerable to disciplining and sanitization so we need to uh, you know understand how like for example as to how you know current historiography largely fails to recognize how certain gender political strategies such as you know for example constructing warrior genealogies or military pasts or entering the army or a founding of the samata sainik dal in 1927 and attempts to eradicate supposedly ashlil women from dalit samaj were attempts not uh, first and foremost to conform to or reproduce or challenge colonial or brahmani gender norms but they were to generate a unique dalit manus and manuski in the context of sex gender caste discourses about docile dirty childlike deficient or effeminate dalit men and hypersexualized dalit women so ambedkar very often intentionally invoked dalit masculinity as a facet of manuski to challenge dalit men and women to defend their rights and liberties and sustain their autonomy and independence so you know th- therefore you know uh, sometimes you know uh, scholars and it's it's no surprise uh, that you know dalit response entailed manuski but here again we need to understand that manuski and masculinity are 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 hedged and and most importantly we need to understand the transformative potential of this modern politics of manuski and so perhaps you know we see with ambedkar and even like what the jalsakars were trying to do the marginalization of women was necessary to this making of dalit manuski a new dignified humanity and perhaps this exclusion of women from tamasha and jalsa was necessary to secure societal recognition of dalit manuski because there was no non patriarchal gender egalitarian model of manuski available so this were intensely troubled uh, you know processes but we need to also understand that you no know, this is not uh, just a completely patriarchal move there is something uh, that is at stake which is humanity and dignity for dalits so how do you work through these different pressures so that is what i'm trying to do in my in the book right no that was uh, great thank you so much for taking the time to uh, unpack that with us over here and that and that is really in the essence of the book and and i and so my next question is to uh, 
talk through things about like invisible labor and specifically the vulnerability to everyday and and more structural not that they are mutually exclusive forms of violence that dalit women have to experience and i asked this in the light of like uh, it's an academic interest now uh, in understanding pleasure and and maza and joy and what not uh, but you really um braid those questions and in fact pose a question to what pleasure looks like for different kinds of bodies and how that may be just braided in structurally with with instances of violence and and not just instances uh just an entire structure of violence and and exploitation so could you talk to us about that yeah definitely and here you know this as you said you know maza and in the other word that i come across is nakhra so <laughs> so i you know how and this yes uh, scholars and you know uh, uh, lay people talking about oh the woman is you know doing a lot of nakhra lekin you know every um, people seem to be just oblivious to you know how uh, these uh, this pleasure is rooted in the in in caste violence and you know they seem they just invisibilize the work of these relationships of power and caste and economics so for example you know tamasha is actually rooted um in two marathi words you know it was referred to as khel it is play and you know gammat which is fun you know humor and colloquially the word has come to mean you know fun nonsense a tantrum or even disorder and commotion so tamasha is this you know uh, um this nexus um this this is the nexus of play and work that i'm interested in and this is how tamasha is conveniently naturalized and normalized so that is what uh, i have challenged and uh, many tamasha people also agreed that tamasha was kala which is art or or lakshmi you know goddess of wealth and of course you know means their means of livelihood and some underlined you know exhaustive training and rehearsals tamasha was also uh, it also expected tamasha women to play rather than work right so in this process we clearly see that this kala or khel invisibilized the work and relationships of power and caste and the political economy in tamasha so as such you know the form and uh, the actors they reduced dalits to singing and playing music and dancing and you know until the current day and tamasha women worked on this reiterative body politics of erotic excess for example emphasizing bold bodily gestures that is winking the left eye or accentuating the and deploying certain body parts you know uh, openly expressing uh, expressing sensuality and you know for and expressing love making or sexual enjoyment for their predominantly touchable male audience and we clearly see that in this process work is um, and in this practice work is looked upon as productive and play is its opposite it's its antithesis it's it's play is looked upon as unproductive so different touchables and untouchables they harness you know uh, tamasha for doing some work for by putting the unproductive to productive use and of course women did the most important work that was rendered play because of the presumably unruly energies aimless and simple enjoyments uh, that tamasha provided so as play in the sense of drama or even play between the artist and the audience tamasha lacked utility and the play and playfulness of tamasha has mass appeal and touchables and untouchables they also deployed it for their you know their own gains so by sanitizing tamasha touchable elites put the resistance and rebellious energy of tamasha to the work of carving asli identity thus the quote and quote play of tamasha you know uh, successfully occludes work in the sense that the always already sexually alienated labor of the dalit tamasha woman performer 
it produces the surplus that keeps the sexual caste economy in place. And we clearly see this, you know, in different chapters, especially uh, chapter one. And Tamasha and its practitioners, they, you know, also paradigmatically represented the excess, the waste of the world. So as such, you know, there's always this violence uh, at play with regard to Dalit culture, artistry and creativity in this fun-filled tamasha. And although you know, all our, uh, touchable men enjoyed tamasha and tamasha women, they also devalued the work of tamasha women and rendered them unproductive and surplus. So on the one hand, there's this management of surplus through a set of, you know, through like through a set of iterative practices of negative control. And in the other, there's a marking of surplus as negative and corrosive and yet necessary in order to assert this asli caste selfhood of savarnas. So the fun and play, Tamasha was, you know, color, calm, and the performance of sensual play for Tamasha women and relaxation, amusement, entertainment, and opportunity to feel like a real man, quote-unquote real man, uh, for the touchable men in the audience. So Tamasha women, you know, which was supposed to be their play, but they're actually working, enabling men to laugh, to joke, make lewd comments, or pat each other on the back and flirt and dance and drink. And men structured their manliness and masculine behaviors mainly with, you know, this Tamasha woman who excited and stimulated them. So the everyday work and sustenance of Tamasha women depended on their complying, challenging, negotiating, bending, and transgressing of traditional patriarchy through an excessive performance of the erotic and the exotic. So there was this double system of work and play in Tamasha. Work was concealed behind play, And most important, the meaning of play was fashioned to accommodate that of work. And yet the work of Tamasha women and these, you know, the different Tamasha women I interviewed and, you know, who are portrayed in the book was depicted as non-work, especially in the culture of India that values hard work. And as a result, time pass, as we call it, has a negative connotation. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, actually, you uh, in this uh, kind of in, in investigating this paradox uh, that the performance and performativity of Tamasha enables, you tell another very, very important connected history, right? Like the appropriation, the devaluing, but then appropriation of Tamasha to produce especially in post-colonial Maharashtra to produce Marathi cultural identity. But the very constrained uh, constrained and circumscribed kind of agency that that allows to the Tamasha women performers themselves in order to construct uh, selfhood. Uh, and you describe this selfhood as self in community. And I want to return to this uh, question of the Samaj uh, and, your, and how you broadly sketch the Uh, this very complex, what you call uh, ambivalent agency of Tamasha women and its its relationship to the Dalit Samaj that Ambedkar's Manuski uh, configures. And so my question is really about how, uh, and I'm interested in this question because in a way, uh, the modern concept of society as we know it is incommensurable with these uh, kind of disjunctive hierarchies of an order based in caste. And you show how the Dalit Samaj actually offers a very particular figuration of the social, not composed of abstract or equal individuals, but as you show of a self in community. So I was wondering if you could elaborate for our listeners how Tamasha women figure in this self in community and how their relationship to the Dalit social engenders some new meanings of community or of Samaj. And in particular, uh, you know, it comes towards the end as you as you talk about your interview with Mangladai, uh, this complex negotiation that uh, Tamasha Dalit Tamasha performers have with uh, the figure of the quote prostitute woman in in uh, thinking of their own uh, agency, their own uh, negotiations with uh, very constrained. Uh, but opening up possibilities for respectability, agency, selfhood in community. So that's a long-winded question, but I hope you can elaborate on this 
kind of relationship of the of the Dalit women performers to uh, Samaj. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yes. So uh, the concept of Samaj and the self and community, uh, as I call it, is also very very central because we clearly see that Ambedkar is, uh, you know, he's he's trying to uh, build. Uh, you know, community, however fuzzy it might be, but at the same time, you know, is very successful in bringing together uh, the Samaj in order to, you know, in order to fight for personhood, you know, uh, this dignity and humanity, uh, Manuski, that was denied to Dalits. So, bringing together, you know, these uh, disparate threads, you know, this, uh, but but trying to bring together this collectivity of Dalits. And again, uh, here I want to emphasize that, yes, there were a lot of contradictions amongst Dalits themselves as to you know, how they would, how they wanted to, you know, view and you know what imagine what liberation looked like for them but at the same time all agreed and were committed to the cultivation of for example you know manuski which was important to protect basic civic and human rights and cultivate untouchables worthiness to gain citizenship freedom and equality so the the problem Ambedkar faced was not of responding to characterizations of Dalit men as effeminate and Dalit women as ashlil, but of this tenuous process of reforming, maintaining Manuski, carving out a positive Manus, and becoming, you know, quote-unquote civilized and quote-unquote cultured and adopting certain respectable moral standards in order to be accepted by the larger Indian society. And here, yes, you know, uh, even some responses such as, for example, founding of the Samta Sainik Dal entailed a performance of a hegemonic, uh, hegemonic masculine norm or the caste or the sex gender caste complex. It also unequally burdened Dalit women with accusations of immorality and vulgarity. And thus, this new Dalit woman, she was burdened with these, uh, you know, pressures and consequences of the reform of the Dalit Samaj. And, you know, caste assumptions led, that led to hierarchies of purity and pollution, superiority and inferiority, decency and degradation, highness and lowness, and, you know, an order and danger. They created devastation on both sides of the caste divide and produced a less generous society and excluded untouchables from the common wheel. So Dalit women's sentiments, attachments and commitment emphasize that these projects of building a Samaj or even the projects of of Dalit feminism uh, in a doubly colonial Brahmani and British colonial context and the articulation of gender and sexuality as well as, you know, the Dalit revolution are never predetermined. So there is no just one way of bringing together uh, the Dalit Samaj and, you know, uh, or just one way of thinking about, for example, the project of Dalit feminism or Dalit humanism. They are to be negotiated according to historical moments as well as caste, race, class positions. And, you know, thinking about, you know, how Mangaltai or Tamasha women, you know, what, how they were negotiating and interacting with this Samaj. I mean, clearly we see that uh, Dalit men, including, you know, Ambedkar and the Jalsakars that we come across in the book are intensely troubled by the exploitation of women like Paurabai in the theater of Tamasha. And this that and because they sought to recuperate a certain humanity, you know, a certain swabhiman or self-respect and manuski for all Dalits, and remaking of the honor of the most degraded woman was critical to Dalit self in the community in uh, a doubly colonial context. So yes, uh, you know, certainly uh, uh, there are tensions, but. Uh, we uh, and we also see as to how, for example, women like Mangaltai, 
you know, continue to negotiate with the Dalit and the non-Dalit Samaj, you know, so who are dealing with a double patriarchy, both inside and outside. And they have to make certain critical decisions when they are trying to, you know, do this. So, for example, this, you know, one is, yes, they understand that, you know, they're, the, that their relationship to with the Dalit social is very fraught. And uh, at the same time, they are also provided, you know, some opportunities of self-making. There is some um, resistance that is tolerated. But again, you know, only if they act within particular boundaries. However, in the 20th century, you know, and from the end of the 20th century, and especially in the 21st century, we also clearly see as to how Dalit women have pushed, you know, these boundaries of the Dalit Samaj, carving out, you know, their own status, financial and social. And as I have mentioned, uh, and as Niharika pointed out, uh, you know, in the in, in the conclusion of the book, I show as to how they have formed an acquisitive, responsible and self-interested ethic through which they could remake themselves and their families and just, you know, show as to you know, how they were embraced uh, by the Samaj. And, but at the same time, again, you know, very, very fraught, they are embraced. And at the same time, you know, uh, they are also, they could be depicted as, uh, as uh, vulgar uh, women. So these are, the, these are the contradictions and pressures and the tenuous moments that we come across. So on the one hand, certainly the Dalit Samaj offers this, you know, very concrete uh, instances of building self in the community despite of hierarchies and dif- despite of, you know, differences in ideologies. And at the same time, there are also these um, moments when things may collapse or may or things may be taken to newer, uh, higher, you know, grounds where where women are pushing uh, these boundaries. Yeah, thank you so much. And you show this so beautifully in the text. I'm really um, stopping myself from going into lengthy quotations where you where you kind of sketch this, what you call an ambivalent agency so wonderfully. And you show how rather than, you know, rather than being about kind of claim to certain kinds of adaptation, stable identity it's really about opening possibilities and oriented towards the future and again i'm holding myself back from quoting but uh, but to in the you know looking towards the future and in that sense you know opening up possibilities i wanted to talk about some sources or some of the critical conversations that your work participates in so of course you uh, engage with Ambedkar and the writing of an activism of dalits you also talk about you also kind of uh, uh, bring or engage with feminist anti-caste critics like Sharmila Rege, Gail Omvet, Vigita in particular, but also theorists of race and imperialism. You draw especially on Saidia Hartman, Sylvia Winter, Fanon. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you draw um, insights from these different conversations, how you connect them and, and, and kind of produce in producing your own insights and also uh, you know, what you think are the contributions of your work uh, in particular, and maybe this complex picture of agency that you sketch uh, to these conversations. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I have really, you know, um, benefited from and, you know, I have um, drawn upon and built upon, uh, you know, scholars who have worked on these complicated uh, interlocking technologies, as I call them, of caste, gender, race, sexuality, popular culture. And so that is where, you know, the scholars that um, you come across in the book and as Niharika mentioned, you know, they, they have been extremely, you know, critical 
to my work. So, for example, you know, I see that the book is able to to not only you know uh, build on, but also you know build a, a new foundation for thinking about the conjugated operations of caste, race, gender, and sexuality. So, you know, this is uh, showing us that, you know, my analysis of oppressed subjectivities of Dalit women is not constrained to the South Asian uh, Indian context, but it is... It can be. It is applicable to you know non-South Asian uh, context, and I have benefited from reading and working with Ambedkar, Sylvia Winter, Saidia Hartman, uh, Fanon, and Achil Mabembe in terms of you know thinking through thinking about the Dalit human. So. It has been wonderful, you know, linking and connecting these insights of black scholars with Dalit scholars and, you know, and some non-Dalit scholars to understand what and how we can think. Uh, and, you know, wh- what, for example, Ambedkar may be focusing on when he's talking about Manuski for Dalits. So this is where, you know, I am, I am, you know, um, connecting them and advancing, uh, you know, their insights to understand this, this humanness of Dalits and the way they were trying to build humanity and dignity, uh, something that has not uh, been done. And this is, this is how I, Right, which I, uh, you know, this this is what I, you know, this is my contribution to this global history of sexuality and gender and social inequality and humanity. So the the key insights that uh, you know uh, that I bring to to the to the table are basically of humanity, of understanding, you know, the sex gender caste complex of understanding how certain communities are looked upon as vulgar and you know non-human for that matter and and because of the ways social inequality operates and drawing upon these uh, different theorists in different locations and how they have tried to understand you know humanity has you know um, helped me connect uh, not only these different lives, but also sharpen the focus on how people construct uh, their own agency. Right. Thank you so much. That was, uh, you sat through so much of this with us. I am really thankful that that you went into so much detail with us. Uh, and of course, it's a wonderful book. Strongly recommend everyone to go out and get a copy and engage with it. It was fabulous. Yeah, I can assure all the listeners that we barely scratched the surface yeah. in terms of the, the the many conceptual insights of this book and you know we've we're actually not even be going through all of our questions since we're running out of time but yeah again i want to echo lakshita that i really encourage everyone to to read the book yeah uh just one final question uh about your upcoming projects what can we expect to read from you i for one i'm really excited i'm sure niharika has too to hear that Definitely, again, you know, I'm very excited to share that I have um, an article coming out and the title of the article is To Kiss or Not to Kiss. Interesting. That sounds great. So so I'm uh, very excited about that. And again, you know, once again, focusing on uh, kissing and, you know, vulgarity and the regeneration and the remaking of the Maharashtra state, especially in, you know, the, in post-colonial times. And I'm also, uh, look, I'm also editing a book on caste and race in South Asia and in South Asia and beyond. And uh, I am uh, the 
the Cambridge Companion to Ambedkar is a forthcoming. So these are the different projects that I'm working on. And uh, lastly, uh, I'm at the National Humanities Center uh, this year working on, you know, so in going into the, in the politics of the vulgar in the 19th century. So this is what uh, I'm occupied with right now. Thank you so much, Professor Pike. We look forward to all of those, uh, all of those wonderful projects. Well, thank you very much. This was an incredible pleasure. Yes, I'm very, very thrilled talking about uh, my work with you. Thank you very much for the questions and for the engagement. Thank you so much, Professor Payak. I have interrupted you now twice, so I'm just going to uh, stop recording <laughs> before it gets worse. <laughs>